Hello and welcome to Never Lick the Spoon, the podcast that makes molecules molecule. That is grim. In this episode, I look behind the story of one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century, and it happened right here in London. So what was the greatest discovery of the 20th century, I hear you cry? The mobile phone, aeroplanes, the television. Well, for a number of lives saved at least, it has to be antibiotics. And as every schoolchild will tell you, the first antibiotic, penicillin, was discovered by Alexander Fleming. The story goes that Fleming went away on his holidays, leaving behind some petri dishes of a bacteria he'd been examining. The particular bacteria caused boils and sore throats in humans. When he got back, he noticed something unusual in one dish. The bacteria had disappeared, and in its place some mould had been growing. Fleming published his findings, but essentially left it at that. The paper was stumbled upon by a young German refugee who had fled to Britain after the Nazis seized power in the 30s. He was a man deeply fascinated in using chemistry to explain the world around him. His name was Ernst Chain. If Fleming had discovered penicillin, it was Chain, along with his research group in Oxford, that brought penicillin out of the dusty scientific papers and into the hospital. This is his story. To uncover the lesser-known story of Ernst Chain and his role in penicillin, I travelled to University College London to speak to Ernst's son, Benny Chain, himself a modern-day pioneer in biochemistry, the field his father began all those years ago. So obviously the penicillin discovery occurred before the Second World War, uh, in the very late 30s, which was uh, long before I was born. So everything I can, I'm telling you now is, as it were, second-hand, either from my father or people who knew him, uh, who I've spoken to uh, over the years. So the story, very briefly, was that uh, my father came to Oxford in uh, 1936. He was a German-Jewish refugee who'd left Berlin in 1933. He was invited um, by uh, Howard Florey, who'd taken over as head of the Dunn School of Pathology in Oxford, to do a postdoc, and um, particularly they were interested in a phenomenon called microbial antagonism, where one microbe uh, makes a chemical or substance uh, which kills other microbes, which had been described a few times. And my father was interested in it because he was interested in the idea that maybe you could explain these phenomena in, in chemical terms, find a, an actual molecule rather than just describing a phenomenon. And he looked through the literature and he came across a paper published uh, about 15 years earlier by Alexander Fleming. Which was the paper that described the mould killing the bacteria. My father came across the paper. Um, he later told me that he, he, he assumed that Fleming had died by this time because he just seemed like an, uh, an old scientist, as it were. But anyway, um, he, he read it, and he, he decided this would be a very interesting thing to work on. Um, and uh, so this is the crucial part, really. He thought, well, the first thing we should do, really, before we try anything, is just grow this mould, take the mould liquid, and see whether it can kill bacteria in a mouse rather than just in a dish. Um, I mean, one can ask why... Fleming hadn't asked that question, but I think it's a question of environment. So he'd come from Berlin, where chem- chemotherapy of bacterial disease was well established um, since the early days of Paul Ehrlich, who'd used arsenic to k- treat bacterial diseases. So it was kind of in the bones, as it were, um, and he thought, well, let's try it. 
Uh, and basically that's the experiment that he and uh, Flory and his uh, assistant uh, Norman Heatley did, carried out. They grew some mold, they infected some bacteria, uh, some mice with bacteria, they injected some of the mice with um, just very, very crude, it was just the broth the mold grew in, uh, and then they watched the mice, and um, it was a kind of a, you know, one of those um, uh, epoch-making moments, basically all the mice infected with uh, bacteria who had not received the, the mold extract died, and the others were perfectly happy all night, um, and then survived. Um, and so they worked on the purification, and my father was by training an organic chemist, uh, and it turned out that there were a few tricks in the purification that um, he tried, uh, which managed to greatly in increase the purity. It was still very impure, but it was a thousand times better than, more potent. Uh, and at that point, they decided to try it, the uh, material, the crude material, in humans. Uh, and they treated a couple of people. The first one was a policeman who subsequently died, uh, but showed a remarkable improvement until they ran out of penicillin. Uh, and then the second was a child they thought might manage with less material because it was smaller, uh, who survived. So that's the basic uh, story. That's amazing. And I was reading about the policeman, yeah. and it turned out that he'd, he'd got a, a scratch, I think it was, yeah. from... Bush, uh, something like that, very innocuous, and uh, so he was, you know, very sick, and they administered the penicillin, and yeah, it was a few days, uh, and he was making this remarkable recovery, and they, and they ran out of stock because I presume if if it's less pure, you need a lot more of it, yeah, yeah. and obviously he was in trials, so they they didn't have much to start with. Yeah. That's really, but it's really sad, isn't it? When you when you think about, well, it's a, it's kind of a bittersweet. Yeah. It's amazing that it worked and then and then didn't. So the name Fleming is synonymous with the development of penicillin. Was that the case in Ernst's lifetime, and was that something he was ever bitter about? I, I don't know if I'd go as far as bitter, but I think the whole Oxford group felt Fleming got an rather unfair share of the publicity and if you ask a child even probably to this day you know who discovered penicillin it's in, in many of the books although it is slowly changing it is Fleming um, that was actually a, a decision it came out of essentially I guess what you now call communications uh, of St Mary's Hospital they ran a very successful fundraising uh, immediately after the war, towards the end of the war and immediately after the war, and they based their fundraising very largely on the penicillin. That was a major strand, you know, this is the place where penicillin's been discovered, please give us more money, and so they made a huge fuss. It, on the contrary, um, Flory was absolutely allergic to publicity. He refused to talk to the press or the media at all, and... Um, he gave us his reason that he didn't want to raise false expectations. At the time, there was very little penicillin, and it was also um, restricted for war use. Or the, what, what little was was sent to the army. Uh, and what he, he thought if they ran a series of programs, people would start phoning. And that's what did happen, in fact. And he couldn't really satisfy those people. But I think, in general, he was, uh, it just wasn't his nature to engage with the press or the media. So basically Oxford stayed silent, St Mary's ran a very successful publicity campaign and that was the story that was eventually embedded in the kind of public, uh, public perception. 
but if Fleming hadn't made his observation, it's certain that uh, uh, penicillin would not have been discovered till considerably later because my father would never have thought of working on it unless he'd come to this paper. Uh, on the other hand, Fleming had left the subject and you know, 15 years had elapsed. He certainly was not going to work on it. So if it hadn't been for the Oxford group, uh, which and w that was really spearheaded by my father, um, definitely, uh, I mean, penicillin wouldn't have been discovered till, till long after. Chen did go on to win the Nobel Prize with Fleming and his colleague Howard Florey. He was even knighted in recognition for his achievements. However, the slight resentment he felt for Fleming taking all the plaudits was added to by what happened next. He actually tried to get penicillin patented by the UK government. So he didn't feel that... It, I mean, at the time, it wasn't normal for scientists to patent their own inventions. That, not that normal. So he wasn't wanting it patented for himself, but he su suggested that the UK should set up uh, a kind of a national pharmaceutical industry that would hold the patents. And um, at the time, I mean, it's amazing, really, but the... Um, the establishment uh, refused to patent it, and my father told me, I think the letter is probably still in the archives at the Wellcome Trust, that he received a letter saying that he shouldn't agitate for uh, patenting penicillin um, because it, it reflected badly not only on him but on the Jewish community in the UK, which is a, a kind of a, basically a racist remark that, you know, it would look money-grabbing if they, if they patented it. And so, although he tried to get the UK to government, they refused, and, uh, but the American government had absolutely no scruples. They could no longer patent the actual product because it had been published, but they patented the methods of production. Ernst eventually made it to Imperial College, where he founded the biochemistry department, the first of its kind in the UK, and the modern biochemistry building bears his name now. It was at Imperial that Benny spent his formative years, growing up amongst the smells of mould being grown in his father's lab. Mmm. In fact, the modern-day biochemistry common room on Level 7 was the Chain family flat, so chosen as Ernst could keep an eye on all that research being carried out. Growing up in a house that stunk of mould, a Nobel Prize-winning dad, and a mother who was a leading biochemist in her own right, Benny was always destined to become a biochemist, as work continues on from where his dad left off, where he now plies his trade, at the interface between computers and immunology. But I leave him to explain that. The interface which has driven biology for the last 50 years has been between chemistry and biology, the idea that you can now explain most biological processes in chemical terms. I think the next big thing is going to be understanding the maths and equations behind it. I mean, in physics, this happened a long time ago. In biology, it's a bit more difficult. Um, but I think that's the place to be, and we're excited because we've just had a paper accepted which studies the immune system in people with lung cancer, and we've developed a computational way of analysing um, the white blood cells inside a tumour to try and identify which ones of them are important for combating the tumour and which ones are just uh, uh, passengers, irrelevant material, um, so that we could focus on those for therapy that's the idea anyway and the next generation of my I've, I have four children um, three of them are in the arts uh, or business uh, and my youngest is a is a medical uh, a doctor he's just moved to the United States actually um, so whether I think sort of the edge of science as it were, the medical edge of science so we'll see what happens in future generations yeah. and we wish those future and current generations well 
Benny Chen, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thanks for your time. Thank you. Benny Chen, the son of Nobel Prize winner Sir Ernst Chen speaking there. So next time you pass by the Ernst Chen building by Queen's Lawn, you know the story of the German refugee whose experiments resulted in the saving of countless lives. And that's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and always remember, never lick the spoon!